You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well, and we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, in this episode, we meet two guests in two interviews. Our first guest advocates for birth, racial, and gender equity driven by her own distressing experiences as a patient. Our second guest developed effective ways to implement virtual care on a large scale to improve equity and representation for rural communities. But first, the pursuit of true equity in U.S. healthcare sometimes gets buried in labels and buzzwords, in numbers and data. And that's when it's important to address what might just be the elephant in the O.R., Structural Racism in U.S. Healthcare. In the following interview, my guest and I touch on health equity, as you've heard on the show before, especially in this case racial equity, birth equity, and even gender equity. Our guest discusses her work and talks about the dyad, the inseparable unit of the person giving birth and the baby they bear. But I mostly want you to listen to her personal story and what inspired her to find and to try to fix the gaps in health equity once and for all. Cincy Hernandez Cancio, JD, is a vice president at the National Partnership for Women and Families, where she leads the health justice team. She's a national health and health care equity policy and advocacy thought leader whose extensive experience spans government, labor, and nonprofit arenas, and she is dedicated to advancing equal opportunities for women and families of color and to advocating for better health care access and quality for everyone. She was born in Puerto Rico and holds a JD from NYU Law and an AB from Princeton University. Cincy will be speaking at NCQA's 2023 Health Innovation Summit. Her session is titled Raising the Bar for Maternal Health Equity and Excellence. In there, she presents a framework for improving or reversing the deep and historic inequities in healthcare for people bearing and raising children. The National Partnership for Women and Families worked with healthcare experts and partner organizations to develop a report that includes recommendations for improvement in resolving gaps in health equity that executive leaders can tailor to their organizations. Check out this episode's description for a link to the report. For the thousands of childbearing people, child advocates, and children of minorities still suffering from gaps in health equity and structural racism in the U.S., this is just one story. Here's my chat with Cincy Hernandez Cancio. I'm actually an example of a person that barely made it out of birthing alive. Um, and so when 17 years ago, when my son was born, I almost died. And, I, and, and uh, the reasons that I almost died was because nobody would listen to me. 
Um, and I ended up in the hospital for 16 days, three operations. And luckily I'm here, but the worst part about it was that when I actually asked the surgeon, what the heck happened? He looked at me and laughed and said, Oh, it must've been all that dirt that I, you know, sprinkled into your wound. Um, and so I, I was already a healthcare policy advocate. I was already working in health equity. Um, I was already working on women's health issues, but that really cemented for me um, because what, what the crisis is, which is like, it didn't matter to that dude <laughs> that I had a JD, that I worked in health policy, that, you know, I went to fancy Ivy League institutions for my education, um, that I was very, very well versed in health. I had my dad was a doctor. I had worked in his office. Um, and I was making a good living and had excellent, excellent Cadillac insurance thanks to working at a union at the time. And none of that mattered. None of that mattered. And I'm not, you know, a shrinking violet when it comes to speaking up for myself, but it didn't matter. Um, and it wasn't just not being listened to. It was like the disregard and disrespect um, was um, unbelievable to me. And I should have known. I should have known. I had had plenty of experiences with racism in healthcare personally and through the work that I do. Um, but that really cemented it for me. So when um, I got the opportunity to start working at the National Partnership and I knew that this is one of the areas of work that they were doing, it was finally kind of the union of, of you know, what I felt I was put into this world to do. Um, and we need, it's, it's unconscionable that our outcomes in this country are the worst in any industrialized nation. Um, and so I'm very, very dedicated to changing that. I know it's a general question, but what, what can healthcare leaders do? And leaders, it doesn't have to be a CEO of a gigantic multi-state company. We could be talking about um, you know, CBOs. We could talk about community organizations as well. As well. What can those leaders and what can healthcare leaders do to improve maternal health equity, identifying and delivery, uh, and to address the crisis that you're talking about right now? Well, clearly there are things that need to be done um, in terms of what we, how we pay for healthcare and health-related um, services, right? Um, we need to pay for what works. We need to pay for the things that we know will make a difference um, for families as, and design those systems for the people who most need the change. Um, when you design a system for like your, you know, your so-called average upper middle class white woman, you are not going to be designing a system that's going to work for the people who are uh, really dealing with this crisis. Um, and, and we need to be frank about addressing structural racism um, because a black woman cannot earn or educate her way out of the crisis. You know, the, I think a lot of people have heard the, the, the statistic that, you know, college educated black women still have worse outcomes than um, white women who haven't gone to high school, who haven't finished high school. Um, and so it's not just a socio, it's not just an economic problem. It's much bigger than that. Um, and it has everything to do with, uh, I think, a long history of women and, women of color in particular, not being taken seriously by our country's institutions and especially by healthcare. Um, and so there's a lot of internal work that needs to be done in institutions, but then there's also like the really logical stuff of like, if we, we know 
there's evidence, plenty of evidence out there. We have it published on our website um, of midwives improve outcomes, access to doulas improve outcomes, access to being able to birth, not in a hospital, not in institutions that many of which have long histories of mistreating people of color, having an option to not do that, be in a birth center or at home, that makes a difference. Um, and supporting these newer perinatal health worker um, community-based organizations that are, that come straight from communities that most need them, that understand all the challenges that a woman of color, Black woman, has in getting the care that they need and being treated with dignity and respect, we need to support that as well. So there is, you know, and, and the work that NCQA does in terms of thinking through what are the measures, um, how do we use driving quality um, to drive equity and narrow gaps um, is really central. Um, and so, you know, at, at the NCQA, I chair the, the Consumer Advisory Pan, you know, Council. Um, and through that is also an opportunity for, you know, we've been uh, able to hear more and more about steps NCQA is taken, taking to address um, how do we have the right measures that can then be tied eventually to quality improvement and hopefully to like paying for stuff that actually makes a difference. You have a call, which is not that unusual for more diversity within care teams. So tell me first, you know, just a little bit about your uh, view of increasing diversity in maternal care. What what does it look like operationally? What does it look like? I walk into the room, what do I see? Or I'm nearby with a family member who's going through maternal crisis or or just postpartum. And what would be the ideal kind of care for that person, regardless of who they are? So the first thing I want to, I, I just want to clarify is that it, it's not about helping families become more self-sufficient because um, we all have networks. You know, we, it's not about self-sufficiency. It is about um, being able to address very deep inequities um, foundationally that exist um, and that are that are not accidents. They're the result of literally generations of decisions made about who gets some assets and who gets thrown all the risk, right? So I just want to be very clear about that um, because it's not about a family or a birthing person not being able to figure it out. It's a family or birthing person that is um, weighed down by many, many different structural inequities um, that are uh, affecting their health and their ability to um, get the high quality care that they need to thrive. Um, so what does it look like? Um, so when I talk about diversity in care teams, I'm very specific about, we're talking about two kinds of diversity. One is, like most people, when they think of diversity, they think of racial, ethnic diversity, that kind of thing. That is incredibly important. There is increasing evidence that when there is racial and ethnic concordance between a patient and their provider, outcomes are better. Um, and so that is really, really important. And we can get into like why, you know, what is that mechanism? Why, why you know, why is that the case um, later? But the other thing we're talking about is, the, is the different roles, jobs, so to speak, that the care team should include, right? Um, so that's like, we need more midwives. We need people to be able to choose a midwife 
um, even if they're in Medicaid, you know, regardless of what their coverage is. We need to have people who are, you know, other kinds of nursing support, like visiting nurses, for example. That's one of the programs that ha- that can happen, you know, after a baby is born. Um, but then we also need non-clinical staff. You know, we need people like doulas, like community health workers, like care navigators, people who aren't who are providing very, very important health-related services that are not clinical in nature. Um, And that's really important because you'd be surprised how often I hear about like, yeah, let's solve the maternal health crisis by having more doulas. No, let's solve the the maternity care deserts by having more doulas. It's like (laughs) a doula doesn't deliver a baby. A doula has another job. Um, We still need clinical providers. Um, and so what that could look like, depending on, on where you are, is, you know, having um, systems where as you, first of all, having access to care before you're pregnant um, to mitigate some of the challenges, um, some of the comorbidities that uh, a lot of people have when they're before they're even pregnant. Um, and then having uh, either a community health worker or a doula or some other navigator that is helping you get through all of the questions and hoops that sometimes you have to go through depending on insurance um, so that those 15 minutes, because we live in a system where doctors only have 15 minutes for you, can be used most appropriately for the things that only the doctor can do. But there is a whole team around the doctor that can be there to support, you know, you know, screening for social needs, screening for mental health issues, referring you if you need it, all of those things. Those are just examples. Thinking about whole person health, talking about physical and behavioral health and looking at the same person and saying, this is one person. These are not two different kinds of healthcare. How do we best provide in, in the instances we're talking about uh, behavioral health support all the way? from before birth to all the way through postpartum? Uh, And how do we uh, remember to consider the mental health care as part and parcel of the patient's overall health care? Yeah, that's 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 incredibly important. And um, the pandemic also increased people's awareness of the impact of mental health issues. Right. Um, We are we have a huge challenge and it's that. you know, on top of the fact that there are maternity care deserts where there simply isn't an OB um, in your area, there's an even bigger shortage of mental health practitioners. And to think that given those, uh, that that reality that the, the doctor, in fr- the OB in front of you or the midwife in front of you is going to be the one-stop shop for all of it is just simply not viable at this, this time. Now, one of the things that we know is that, and that's why a team is so important. Because, for example, co-locating um, and integrating behavioral health practitioners, practitioners or practices with uh, physical health is one way where you can be efficiently providing care um, across the entire spectrum um, of what their needs are. But at the same time, it's you know really challenging. Um, I mean, some of the basic things that need to happen is that there is still a responsibility on part of the, you know, maternity care team to be looking at that, to assess for depression, 
you know, to screen for depression and anxiety and, you know, all of the issues and then have a real plan in place and ability to do not just like here's a list of 10 places for you to call to get these services, but to actually facilitate culturally centered, competent language, accessible services that people may need. Um, and we're just not, you know, maternity care is simply not designed right now in a way that resources um, most practices ability to do that. So I want to talk about number crunching just to 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 fold that into this. Um, because the n- numbers as plain as day as they might be, <clears throat> when you can actuate these numbers, they turn into revelations about health equity, revelations about population health that really just demonstrate deepening inequities in maternal mortality, maternal morbidity. And and the fact that what, we're, what you and I are talking about, it's not just you know a, a sad story about a couple of people. It's endemic in this population, in this country. This is what's going on. And luckily, we have numbers and the data continues to come in, continues to be uh, improved upon so that more and more we're able to reveal, yeah, there are actual, it's an actual crisis. There are actual deepening inequities. Which is actually, and it's getting worse. Right. It's actually going. Th- that's what I was going to ask you. How, how, in what ways do you see it getting worse? And um are, are we running out of time? To, how do we start stopping what's going on and how do we flip things around? So it's very clear. Um, the data that's been coming out uh, is that the, st- the statistics are getting worse in mortality and in morbidity um, for everyone. No one in no demographic group did it improve. Um, and in some groups, it you know is worsening faster than in others. Um, and so there's a bigger question about, you know, all of the, the ways that United States policies um, are really anti-family, anti-pregnancy, um, that make it really, really hard for people to be healthy and stay healthy um, during pregnancy and afterwards, right? Like not having paid leave, for when you, you know, having to go back into the, you know, to work a few days after you give birth, for example, um, not having social systems to address issues like, you know, to address mental health issues and substance use disorders, et cetera. Um, so a lot needs, an incredible amount needs to change in this country to really um, turn that tide. And it, and it is not just improving clinical care. Now, that said, you know, we're in the business of clinical care, right? Um, and there is a ton that needs to be improved in clinical care. Um, and there's a lot of really good work that's being done to try to uh, develop better measures, measures that actually that look at, at, you know, inequity issues, measures that look at trust and respect, because, yeah, people don't necessarily trust their doctors, but healthcare as an institution has been incredibly untrustworthy for some, um, for many populations. Um, so it's not, there's a lot that needs to be done um, to either rebuild or actually build that trust from scratch. And that's why diversity is so important. Um, diversity is important. Um, and by, by now I do mean racial and ethnic diversity um, because there's, 
it enables trust and um, it enables institutions to better understand how they need to shift the way they work um, to be a- to be able to really take care of this next generation. I mean, think we don't have a lot of time already. The majority of kids under 18 are people of color. Um, and so we have a, we have health systems that do not are not designed to help them thrive all across the board. Um, and it's and I think it's like maternal health crisis is kind of like the canary in the coal mine in that. Um, it's, again, one of the most telling examples of how um, there is something about being existing in the United States in um, a non-white body that damages your health, especially when you're trying to have a baby. A big part of equitable care, whether it's racially based, cultural, geographic, um, is making sure that we're covering the patient's entire journey through healthcare services, clearly. Bringing them to healthy lives is more than finding the right Band-Aid for the right condition and getting it to them. Um, I, I know I'm reading this off the page, but what I'm getting to is um, talking about the babies themselves. So in terms of birth equity, this is something else that we want to talk about. So um, tell me a little bit about what we can do now, a call to action, as it were, to ensure equitable care for the babies that are actually being born and their nurturers beyond the birth itself. Well, that's, that's essential because we, it, it is cru- crucial um, to think about the care that people need as dyads, right? Not as yes, they're two separate people, the baby and the birthing person. Um, but policies need to be designed in a way that, uh, understand that they are a dyad and babies don't make it to the pediatrician by themselves. Um, they're taken by their, by a caregiver. Um, and that, that, that first year of life is critically important for the baby, but also for the mom. Um, we know that what happens during childbirth and the immediate, you know, and in the postpartum, um, can have really very long-term effects on a person's health throughout their lifespan. Um, And the same thing uh, when it comes to the infant as well. Um, So policies that respect that dyad, that support that dyad, um, both in terms of health care and other social drivers of health outcomes are essential. So that is everything from, you know, Let's have more, you know, do, you know, postpartum doulas and lactation consultants and, nur- and, you know, home nurses and all of those home visiting programs to provide the support that people need. Let's in that first year, let's make sure that um, people have paid leave and can be, you know, really, truly respect that um, mom baby diet. Um, let's make sure that these families have, the, you know, the nutrition and um, the other and you know, that they need, that they're safe from violence, that they're able to, you know, address mental, especially mental health issues that can, that are very, very prevalent when it comes to the postpartum period, especially we consider how traumatizing it is to give birth in this country for many people, you know, after, you know, as I said in the beginning at the top, 16 days in the hospital, three surgeries, 
Never at any time was I assessed uh, about my mental health and what mental health needs I may have after that trauma. And so those are the kind of changes that we need to see. And yes, there's only a certain part of it that healthcare providers can provide institutions can do. Um, but there's also more than they usually think about as employers, as community partners, as advocates for better policies, not just better health, you know, not just better healthcare payment policies, but better policies for families in general, right? There's a lot that can be done in that space. The easiest thing to do is the hardest thing, which is to just put yourself in the shoes of a patient. Stop talking about numbers and stop talking about the clinicians and say, okay, I'm a patient. I'm just like you just said, and I'm sitting down, they hand me a form with a bunch of boxes that I have to check off. And I, and, and for me, and at some point you get to, and the, uh, there's a box that's missing. That's Mm -hmm. me. There's a me box and it's missing there. And yeah, we had a great speaker uh, about a year and a half ago at one of our events at our quality talks last year, who is a Native American um, and advocates on behalf of Native Americans and, you know, simply said, there just isn't enough diversity in the labels that are in the, the data sheets. So yep. we're just not collecting, you know, enough specific specificity in the population. So that's that's, that's a war we're huge, never going to completely. Yeah, that, complete, that's actually a huge issue point, yeah. in for me um, personally and in maternal care, for example, is that Puerto Ricans have very different outcomes compared to um, the bulk of Latinos in the country. So if you look at P- Puerto Rican maternal health, maternal infant health outcomes look a lot more like black maternal health and infant mm-hmm. outcomes than Latino, um, whether they're in Puerto Rico or in the United States. Um, and we see this in other things too, like asthma, for example. Um, so, but you can't know that unless you're actually disaggregating that data. Right. If you're a person and you're interested, then you'll find out, but that's, that's not going to get it out there unless you're. Yeah. No, you don't even have the data sets to go to. Right. (laughs) You want to research them. Right. And so, um, there's a lot of work that's being done even all the way to up to like looking, looking at the census that, that in in that way, because, Hmm. Some of those distinctions really matter. And the more we're looking at personalized medicine and things of that nature in research, the more we're seeing why it matters. Um, So like, I don't have to, I am the one that educates my son's doctors and my doctors about the fact that it is proven that albuterol does not work as well in Puerto Rican people. Oh, so that why always ending up in the ER for my (laughs) asthma? So why am I the one? And then think, think of all of those that don't even know that. Right. So, So those are so so don't just say take more albuterol because that's not going to solve the problem going to end up in on steroids right like there's things like that that we have so much potential the way science is going mm-hmm. but you know we're not taking advantage of it National Partnership for Women and Families Vice President Cincy Hernandez Cancio noting here that the great speaker I referenced was Dr. Siobhan Westcott Director of American Indian Health in the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Dr. Westcott gave an informative and memorable presentation at NCQA's Quality Talks event in 2022. You can go to qualitytalks.org anytime and click on Past Events in the top right-hand corner of the screen and check out her presentation. Everyone, it's time once again to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. And that place, NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. 
For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention. Bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, the summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It'll feature thought-provoking speakers, unique education opportunities, and an exhibit floor, a pavilion showcasing the latest in innovation. Find out more at ncqasummit.com. It's always a plus when this show can highlight the intersection and integration of overarching topics that we generally discuss. Throughout the past two years, we've discussed virtual care, from telehealth to remote patient monitoring. We've chatted about the holistic hospital-at-home approach to care, and we've talked about equitable care for rural communities, a a refocus on value-based payment models over traditional fee-for-service models, that's another popular topic, and a slew of other improvements to healthcare. Now, our next guest has spent her entire career as a C-suite champion of all of these things, trying to weave them together, if possible, into a singular, solid, practical, large-scale model of care. Debbie Well Powell, MPA, is CEO of DWP Advisors and an adjunct professor at the University of Colorado Executive MBA, and she's also an NCQA board member. But Debbie is best and widely known in the healthcare world as the former Chief Population Health Officer at Essentia Health. Headquartered in Duluth, Essentia is an integrated delivery system of 14 hospitals and 1,500 providers spanning the states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and North Dakota. Debbie designed, built, and operationalized Essentia's $2.5 billion transition, that's billion with a B, $2.5 billion transition from a primarily fee-for-service model of care to one that focuses on value. Debbie's career, especially her time at Essentia, paved the way for integrating so many of the topics I listed above into a framework for providing care to rural communities. Today's problems of inequity are a puzzle. They are a journey, but they're also nothing new. On the other hand, Debbie's solutions and her hope can inspire healthcare leaders toward more efficient and more effective care delivery, regardless of where a patient lives. When we went after the hospital at home um, and um, really launched remote patient monitoring, and we already had the platform for vi- uh, virtual care, I mean, we led the state in Minnesota on the number of virtual care. So it seemed like a natural progression for us to move into the hospital at home uh, program and do more remote patient monitoring. We had already built a platform of value-based care, and so we had X number of value-based contracts, X number of them were downside risk. Uh, Going to risk as a delivery system was a game changer for us in creating accountability across all of our administrators and our clinicians around total cost of care and improvement in quality. From that work, um, we also uh, started to screen our patients uh, for social needs financial stress, food, transportation, that was done all during the COVID era. We started off as a pilot in three of our primary care clinics uh, and moved to um, screening all of our patients eventually as we move through COVID and then a bit post-COVID. 
Uh, and so today, as we looked at the data, and data becomes really important in this, uh, looking at the patients that were, we, we were accountable for, about 200,000 lives, accountable for the cost quality um, and satisfaction of that population in screening for race, race, ethnicity, screening for social needs. Um, we realize that, um, of course, we realize that we cannot do everything, right? So who are our partners? So we had uh, technology partners with remote patient monitoring. Um, we we had a lot of the, uh, de the delivery system functions uh, in-house that we could deliver on. Ma many health systems don't. So you look at Mount Sinai, and I've got friends at Mount Sinai that are, you know, knee-deep into virtual care. They contract out with their hospitalists. They're contracting out with their pharmacy. They're, so there's so many different partners that people can have as they try to deliver on this front door of, uh, of care continuum. Please explain to us your definition of virtual care. What does that include? What does that entail? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack when we talk about virtual care, because we're also talking about digital care. Um, but I look at it as a model of health and healthcare delivery, where the place of service, which traditionally has been in an office setting or a hospital setting, has changed to virtual, mobile, and that virtual care can be telemedicine, telehealth. Um, and it also includes um, you know, wearable devices and interventions. And that's where it gets a bit into digital care. But when you look at how the place of care is delivered, um, how that is changing, how we're reaching out to patients at home and virtually, and we think about these wearable devices, David, all that data collectively um, helps us to better take care of our patients and manage their illnesses and their risks to promote wellness. So there's a lot there um, from uh, virtual care to wearables, but it's all about the patient and the improvement and movement to wellness. So we're all dedicated to patient-centered outcomes, um, uh, but a virtual care doesn't just help the patient, it helps the care system uh, and it, it helps purchasers uh, as well because we're, we're never going to utilize virtual care if the providers, if the clinicians are not interested in it. So it, it, how does, um, what are the benefits of use of virtual care, not just for the patient, but for care systems as, as well as uh, the purchaser? Yeah, I think when it comes to, um, you know, just to recap on the patients, um, you think about why, why virtual care. And for the patient, it really is about uh, who wants to, who wants to drive uh, to a clinic or a hospital. Uh, beds are uncomfortable. Traditionally, food hasn't been great. So you look at the why of the patient, it's, it is less costly. There's many benefits to the patient. And so when you think about the clinician, uh, the clinician is also responding to the patients. And so there's a lot of data out there that shows that millennials, um, other age groups are seeking out um, providers that will deliver care virtually. They don't want to drive and park um, and go in and, and sit in a waiting room. Keeping them safe and at home allowed delivery systems to say, we can keep them safe and at home and keep them, keep our staff safe. Uh, by keeping people at home and providing them care um, that they need, um, especially um, for populations where we understand their needs and could do that outreach virtually.
And one might even think about the flywheel in healthcare. And I think about this for delivery systems. I think about what Amazon has done with their, their apps. And I think about what Vail Resorts has done with uh, their integrated model uh, and, and other industries. What's the flywheel for healthcare? And I think when we think about scanners and devices and smartphones and wearables, that is a way for us to focus on prevention. So it, it's a great opportunity for delivery systems to think about stickiness for their patients that perhaps in the past they had not. So delivering that care differently, but, but getting information differently too is important. So talking about the, the pandemic as um, and I don't, I don't know if people use this phrase anymore, but uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, and even as we had telehealth and virtual care uh, examples, we had solutions that were out there a couple of years ago. But as soon as hospitals started telling people, don't come in if you don't have to, and we don't have any beds open for you, and they're doing triage in the hall, uh, you know, then the benefit would be, well, what can I do for my patients without them having to walk into the building or have to to leave home? So now it's two, three years later. And give us an update. How are things now in terms of virtual care? Who is using it? How is it being used? Um, and, it, it, you know, are these solutions continuing to proliferate? Is it continuing to grow or are we sort of at a stasis right now? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot in there. I would say that when you look at virtual visits, video visits on demand, we've seen a drop across the country from the peak of the pandemic. And some of that has to do with our own inability to really understand human motion studies and to think about the delivery system in a way where a, a physician says, oh, I've got Debbie coming in virtually today. Oh, and David's going to be face-to-face. -face. So the, the standard workflows need to be adjusted. We really need to think through time and motion studies to make physicians efficient um, so they don't get burnt out on, on virtual care. So we have to get better at saying, within primary care, what services clearly could always be delivered virtually? What simply cannot? And so redesigning and transforming the clinical practices to make it easier for the clinician is critical for virtual visits to continue to have its place in the care model. So we, we, we've seen a drop and that's because we've got to go through that kind of redesign of the clinical practice. So that's a bit of a, a learning from virtual care to where we are today. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at the hospital at home and you look at remote patient monitoring, today we have 115 systems, 275 hospitals in 37 states that are innovating with new approaches in hospital at home care, true inpatient care at home. And so what is working is those patients can stay. There's like, you know, I think there's like 70 DRGs. Um, where care can be delivered safely at home. It's at a lower acuity. Um, it is cellulitis, it's UTIs, it's migraines. Um, it, it's the things that can be done safely at home. And with that, there, need, there is a command center, a care team that's really uh, available to those patients 24 seven. Um, um, and, and we are learning how to deliver food at home. We're learning about transportation, paramedics. There's a whole change around the workforce and the skill sets 
that are required to do to deliver this care differently than historically and traditionally care has been delivered. So seeing growth in the hospital at home program, um, it continues. Seeing a flattening of virtual care, we have work to do. Uh, in a different direction, uh, something you, you, you sort of mentioned before that uh, there's friction uh, when it comes to uh, how many patients are not actually meeting with medical staff face to face. This is a, an interesting challenge in the many stresses that clinicians have felt and medical staff has felt in the last two or three years in not being able to see patients face to face. There are challenges there's friction. There are solutions that are very good solutions for use of virtual care. Let me ask you, what is working uh, and, and what's working and, and what's not working for, for virtual care? Uh, what are some of the things that we can stop right now, look back and say, this is what we've learned so far. Um, and maybe even if you were talking about a course correction in terms of virtual care, where should we take it uh, from here? Well, patient experience. I mean, the satisfaction rates that are coming from patients liking virtual care, I mean, it's upwards of 95 to 98%, if not 100%. Patients like this. Patients are coming to their clinicians and saying, I want to be in that program where I can have my uh, cellulitis or my UTI or my headache cared for at home. I don't want to drive. The, the beds are uncomfortable. I don't want to do this. And so the patient... If this truly is, uh, you know, virtual care uh, about patient-centeredness, then we need to listen to our patients and we need to be um, wise um, around how we deliver care, but they're asking for this. And and again, you know, our systems um, don't always have the availability to get in. So this is a way. It, it's not the only way. It is one way in which we can provide care more timely than we are today and have access to specialty care. We actually launched a web online tool uh, as a way for anyone in the community to go online to say, um, these are my needs. Who are these partners? So as you're going along, uh, what are the litmus tests for for knowing uh you know, the, the success rate of, of the programs, how you, because they're so far reaching and you're going in so many different directions. You have so many partnerships that you're dealing with uh, and, and virtual care touches on so many different things. So obviously if you, if you whittle it down to saying, okay, we're using virtual care. Here are just a handful of the programs where it, it's being used as a tool. That's great. Uh, then we can assess the, but how do you actually do the assessments on the success of virtual care? Well, we do track all of the visits. So it's a volume numbers too, right? So whether it's e-visits or virtual visits or video visits on demand or telestroke or telepsych, um, you know, that's from a health system. We're tracking those dollars. I would say when you get to remote patient monitoring and hospital at home, we're tracking our preventable ED visits, uh, preventable admissions, uh, readmissions. We're tracking on uh, the preventative side, annual wellness visits, a way in which we can reach out to our patients 65 and older um, and um, do an annual wellness visit with them virtually so they don't have to come in. And from that, we can create a care plan. So the percent of our Medicare patients, so the denominator is the Medicare patients 
and the numerator is the number, the percent of patients that um, are getting an annual wellness visit. And we want to ensure, because we know it's good care, that 70% of our Medicare patients are getting an annual wellness visit where we're taking that information and we're developing care plans for that member um, and we're following up with them monthly on ensuring that we're identifying, um, you know, their opportunities and a couple of their goals that they have around care, uh, around improvement of their care. And then um, we're also tracking on the community side. So that same member maybe needs food, maybe needs transportation. We're tracking how we're closing the loop on those referrals to those community-based partners. So it's a bit clinical. It's looking at use rates. It's looking at lowering the cost of care. And at the same time, we're looking at um, managing their hypertension and managing their asthma and managing their diabetes. And um, we have that at an individual level. So we're integrating um, what comes through the EMR nightly along with then what the claims data um, is showing us on the total cost of care. We look at leakage of the population too. So um, not only uh, what do these programs do, but when they have their care elsewhere, and this gets back to value-based care and really understanding the total care and where that care is delivered, what's happening when they leave our system and they might go to um, another health system in North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Colorado, wherever that may be. And then what is the cost of that care? And then how do we maybe reach out to earn back their business to provide that care? Because we know this, coordinated care simply costs less. It has better care. It has better opportunity to um, close those gaps in care and it lowers the cost of care. You know, you threw something in there that's alluding to uh, people with chronic conditions. And that's that's a, just to close that sentence. There's that's another aspect of uh, staying on top of people's care at virtual, you know, uh, and value based care. Uh, if you stay on top of things for them and you're able to use virtual care in order not just to reach out to them, uh, but to be consistent with their care, then it helps to manage much more accurately chronic conditions so people don't fall through the cracks. So there's not a constant iteration of them going in for the same problem, you know, so that they get better as opposed to keep, you know, stumbling right. backwards. So right. overall, and, that, and that does happen yeah. if you don't have the connection, the ongoing connection to your patients around their chronic conditions. So, you know, when we started remote patient monitoring, it clearly was COVID. Today at Essentia, um, there are four conditions, medical con chronic conditions that we manage virtually. So that point that I made earlier about what in primary care can always be done virtually and what do we need face-to-face. -face. So for remote patient monitoring, those with chronic heart failure, a psoriasis, uh, COVID, and oncology with chemo, we're managing those patients uh, through remote patient monitoring and you know providing the care they need and connecting them to those resources. So I'm gonna ask you just, the last straight question, the question you asked me to ask you, so I'm going to say it this way. Uh, I, I usually end the the uh, interviews by saying, what do you think things will be like in four years or 10 years, depending on what the issue is? Uh, what gives you hope for the future in healthcare? I think what gives me hope is that uh, the pandemic did offer us an opportunity to think about 
delivering healthcare differently and thinking about the patient differently. And how do we, not just during a pandemic, but how do we keep them safe and at home and they don't need to come to us? Just asking the question, do they, do, do they need to be here? Um, so that gives me hope. The, the other piece that kind of gives me some hope is what CMS is doing around their 2030 uh, stake in the ground around every one of their beneficiaries and their 65 million uh, they want an accountable care arrangement. But let's also think that Medicaid, the CMS uh, has 160 million lives with Medicaid, with Medicare, with the individual market. They're getting smart. They know that ACOs and value-based care are saving them money. Coordinated care is a benefit to the patients. That engagement um, creates uh, new opportunities with the patient. So I, I like what CMS is doing. I think it's a heavy, heavy lift. They're, they say it's hard work, but when one in every $5 is spent on, you know, a, a, a patient that the government pays for, uh, they're looking at an alignment of quality metrics, standardizing those quality metrics. They're looking at ways in which they can help the delivery system engage with members. Maybe it is even waiving a copay for those that have chronic conditions. So um, the partnerships that develop that are really important to help the delivery system do what it needs to do uh, to improve on affordability and to improve on quality these sort of headwinds give me hope. So just seeing that a hospital home is now, you know, we're past the pandemic, but this program stays in place. Our community partners stay in place. The whole effort around health equity. You know, I was living uh, in Duluth, Minnesota at the time of George Floyd. And, um, you know, at that same time in our value-based contracts, we were looking at commercial Medicaid and looking at prenatal care. We saw huge disparities in who had access to care or not. And we saw then as we looked at, you know, race and ethnicity, the gaps in care and the data was alarming to us to say, we didn't know this. We are better than this. So how do we change the model and move beyond the four walls of the hospital? And how do we create mobile COVID and, and go out to a, um, a reservation? Or how do we break into communities that have not trusted us in the past and get them the vaccines that they didn't have and that they need? So it, it really allowed us to think differently. And the hope I have is that we don't lose the learnings and the and, and so far, you know, we even have uh, the government adding more metrics uh, to the, even the inpatient quality programs on the hospital side that we're tracking disparity. And so it starts with reporting, tracking it, and then it will be about what are we doing about what we know. And then, again, it's it's knowing that we can't deliver it all, and those community partners are really important. Thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for joining me. I, I, I appreciate it. And I've been in healthcare my entire career. I love mm -hmm. it. It's dynamic. It's forever changing. Uh, we are all patients. We deserve uh, affordable, coordinated care. Uh, and um, this work can make a difference for us, for our patients, for our family members, uh, and for our community. And so um, I stay connected to it because um, I want to make a difference and I want to see that we make a difference uh, because we deserve it. Debbie Well-Powell, MPA, CEO of DWP Advisors and an NCQA board member. 
And as she was last year, Debbie will again be at NCQA's annual Health Innovation Summit, this time in October 2023, moderating a panel called Beyond the Walls, Virtual Care Improves Access and Outcomes. Hope to see you there. We come again now to our Fast Facts segment, offering healthcare information you can use in your daily life. This episode is certainly no exception. It's a good bet that nearly everyone listening to my voice has either had a friend, loved one, or colleague experience cancer, or you've had cancer yourself. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Through social media, I've been tracking the breast cancer journey of a friend of mine from high school over the course of the past year. Though she's done, she's been done with chemo for a few weeks, she's now dealing with the treatment's after effects, and she's realizing that some of those effects have yet to surface. For the family and friends, clinicians, and employers who form a support ring around cancer patients and help to lift them up, it's sometimes hard to remember that even when someone goes into remission, even when someone survives cancer, has no evidence of disease, Their lives are changed in so many ways, changed forever. Right now, I'm turning to the CDC for guidance on, quote, how to help people with cancer stay mentally and emotionally healthy, unquote. That's the title of the page where I got today's information for this segment, but I'm sure these points can also help us help someone else who might be recovering from chemo, surgery, or radiation, or any combination of the three. So here's some tips based on those offered by the CDC for supporting people going through cancer. First of all, be sensitive to the person's feelings. Then, encourage the person to join a support group, whether it's sharing experiences or they just sit and say what's on their mind, and all with no judgment. Clinics should have referrals for mental health services like these available. If the person is worried about money, you can go online and help provide them resources for advice and support. The CDC even has a a page with resources like this. And then finally, this from the CDC, quote, help the person stay as active as possible. Physical activity has been linked to lower risk of depression, as well as to lower rates of recurrence of certain kinds of cancer, unquote. NCQA has a HEDIS measure called the BCS, or breast cancer screening. It assesses women 50 to 74 years of age, who had at least one mammogram to screen for breast cancer in the past two years. As is noted on our site, aside from some forms of skin cancer, breast cancer is the most common cancer among American women, regardless of race or ethnicity. Screening can improve outcomes. Early detection reduces the risk of dying from breast cancer and can lead to a greater range of treatment options and lower healthcare costs. I'll include a link to this measure and to the CDC's tips for support in this episode's description. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. If you're coming up empty for what to say, well, here's our question for this episode. What would you want your surgeon to know about you before you're taken into surgery. And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, or maybe you'd like to be that guest, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. 
and be sure to write the words inside healthcare in the subject line. Makes it easier to find you. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 116 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or whether you stream it, then if you find us, then follow us. Make us your favorite. Click that little heart thing. And spread the word about the show. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to blossom and grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar, and we'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>